Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. This episode features a conversation with Claire Schlemmi, the founder and CEO of Renewal Mill, a next-generation ingredient company that fights climate change and global food loss by upcycling byproducts from food manufacturing into premium ingredients and products. Renewal Mill's flagship ingredient is organic okara, a high-fiber, high-protein, gluten-free flour made from the nutritious soybean pulp left over when you make soy milk. The company uses the okara in a number of plant-based products, including a vegan, soft-baked chocolate chip cookie, a one-to-one gluten-free baking flour, and an upcycled brownie mix. This is Claire Schlemmi and the Renewal Mill Story. Claire Schlemmi from Renewal Mill, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be chatting with you today. Yeah, we were supposed to chat back in March of 2020. uh, And I feel like if you had done that podcast back in March, it would have been very different from the one we're about to do today. In some ways, I wish I had both. uh, So we could, uh, we could see, you know, seven months into COVID versus right in the beginning when no one knew what was happening, what would you have said? Totally. That's, that's very true. Some, some things have definitely happened in the, in the ensuing time period. <laughs> yeah. So, we, you know, of course, I want to talk about how your, your, your company and your business has changed or evolved in the last few months, as as many other people's businesses, because of what's happening with the pandemic. But um, let's go back kind of to the beginning first. Uh, I know you got your food entrepreneurship journey uh, with an organic juice company, uh, and how did that kind of inform the idea that eventually became the current business you're working on? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So my my first foray into food was with the organic juice company Mother Juice in Boston, um, and our goal with Mother Juice was really to connect uh, local farmers, so a lot of New England farmers, uh, with people in the city. Um, So it was an idea that grew out of weekly trips to the farmer's market where we wanted to be able to have folks be able to interact with that produce that was there in a tangible way right away at the at the market. Um, And one of the things that I that really became a challenge for me early on was seeing just how much waste came out of the process of juicing, Um, particularly, you know, after a whole day of juicing. Uh, we would end up with just this mountain of you know, wet fruit and vegetable pulp. 
And it became, it, it was, it was really both an economic and, and almost emotional pain point because you, you know, from an economic standpoint, you've paid top dollar for this local produce, all of it organic. Um, and, and you can see how much of it is going to waste. Um, but also as you're seeing all this waste, it's like, you also know that all the resources that went into growing that are also being thrown out, right. Mm -hmm. With, with the, with the pulp. Um, so it, it was something that I really disliked about the, the production process. And it was just, you know, it was something that we had to kind of just deal with. We, we tried to, tried to fix it in small ways. We would use some of the pulp to make, um, uh, food products to sell along with the juices, like, you know, juice pulp muffins and things like that. Um, but we, we really couldn't make a dent in just how much we were producing. And then kind of a flip side of that, because it was fairly inefficient at, at using these fruits and vegetables, um, we, you know, the, the product that we were actually selling, the juice, ended up being at a pretty high price point. So this idea of being affordable connection of people in the city with the New England farmers, um, really, we weren't able to really do that to the extent that we that we had set out to do. Um, so those were really kind of the the problems that were swimming in my mind um, when I was looking for my next opportunity in the in that food and sustainability space. And it was really a fortuitous conversation with the owner of Hodo Foods, who I believe has been on this mm -hmm. this podcast before, Min, um, when I, I, I realized from his uh, from talking to him about his business in in making tofu that he had a very similar pain point. And so it was it was really exciting to see this opportunity of byproducts at that food production scale um, and realize that there was a really unique opportunity there to actually make a more efficient food system. Yeah, I think in the last few years, um, it's luckily become more widely known that the food system is one of our um, key contributors to climate change. And if we change the way we produce, distribute and consume food, we we have a shot at maybe slowing down the pace of climate change, reversing some of the damage. And if you want to have food security in the long term, and I think this is becoming a bigger conversation, partly because of COVID as well, how do you uh, build a food system? How do you make sure that the existing food system can survive things like pandemics and wildfires and the other things that are definitely going to come as climate change is already starting to show its... its uh, uh, it's already trying to starting to show up. It's not something that's going to happen twenty years from now. It's here already. Um, it's here. <laughs> so you know, one of the two of the big issues that have come up in recent years is, of course, um, when it comes to food sust sustainability and changing our food system is one is if we can get people to adopt more plant-forward diets. That's definitely mm -hmm. a step in the right direction. The other big driver for change is food waste is often brought up as the issue, but. Most consumers, when you talk about food waste, they think you're talking about uh, the waste that they're creating at home, which is true. It's part of the problem. So how much of the food waste problem that exists, maybe let's just take the U.S. because we're the worst at everything, right? So let's just take the U.S. Is it the more of the problem upstream at the point of at, at the farms and at the manufacturing facilities or downstream in our homes? Yeah, it, you know, it exists across the whole food supply chain. So it's, it, you know, there's, 
there's certainly companies working on kind of the the growth end. So looking at, you know, getting everything out of the farm um, so that you don't have waste, getting all that ugly produce out. Um, And there's a lot of waste at the consumer end too. There's quite a bit that happens at home. um, Once, once you've brought, brought that food into your refrigerator Um, and and there's waste that happens, you know, with food service. So at restaurants, that's a big contributor Mm -hmm. to the food waste problem as well. Um, what made us really excited about the production phase is that it's really the low hanging fruit of food waste. If you think about the whole journey of where food waste happens on the food supply chain, um, because of the fact that it's already pretty concentrated. So it's not hard to, to aggregate it, to hit that scale that makes it kind of economically viable. And, and it's also already food safe. So one of the, you know, what, what's a real struggle with the waste on the consumer, like kind of that post-consumer end of the, the food supply chain is that, uh, you know, you have food safety issues with things like food after, uh, you know, a restaurant has prepared meals. Um, and then at home, you're kind of talking about behavioral changes, which are very challenging to, to implement. That's not to say that we shouldn't have mm-hmm. solutions there and that we should focus there. We absolutely should. Um, but I think for us, we thought, well, my goodness, let's go after let's go after the place where it's like easiest to make a big change. And for us, that was that was in food manufacturing, where in the U.S. we have just billions and billions of pounds of what we call this fibrous byproduct. So anything that's coming from that kind of that first processing step when you bring something in from the field so that's that's going to waste. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned uh, Min from Hodo Foods. He's been on the podcast before. Tell me how that conversation then led to you actually working with them and and learning more about this, this soy bean pulp uh, yeah. problem that they had. And you you off, you kind of stepped in and found a way to, to really build a company off that. Yes. So, um, so the first step to making tofu is making soy milk. Um, and that soy milk making process is a bit like juicing the soybeans to get that kind of soy milk out. It's, it's with, with water, but, but somewhat similar. And what's left behind is a pulp similar to what you see in juicing. So we immediately connected on this point of having a very similar type of byproduct that we were both struggling with. Um, and, and I think another place where we were particularly, uh, you know, where there was a, a particular connection was again on that emotional piece of it, watching so much of what, you know, you take so much, Hodo takes so much care in sourcing mm-hmm. their soybeans. They're organic, non-GMO, grown in the U.S. Um, that's a huge differentiator for their tofu is sourcing these premium beans. And yet, um, you know, about 60% of that soybean mass that's brought into the factory was being treated as, as a waste product. So, um, so I think that emotional pull to like, there is a better way, um, was something that we, that we bonded on. Um, and so the first step was really once we, once we kind of talked about the, that pain point and talked about how there might be an opportunity, uh, the next step was for me to actually get my hands on some Okara to see, you know, what is this stuff? How can we use it? Um, I was in Connecticut at the time. So I, uh, got some okara from a a small local tofu maker there and just spent like a weekend with it in the kitchen, throwing it into all different things. Um, Okara is somewhat unique in the byproduct space because it does have a pretty rich culinary tradition in East Asian cooking. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, where, 
when when you would make soy milk at home, it was a lot more uh, kind of tangible connection to the money that you spent on those soybeans. And you're not just going to throw this out. You've got it in your kitchen. You're going to use it in a dish. Um, so trying it out in some of, the, of its traditional uses, throwing it into some more like Western recipes to see what it would do. And that that really sealed the deal for me. It was, you know, it was so clear that this was a, you know, nutritious kind of powerhouse and super versatile uh, ingredient that we could use in so many different recipes. So from there, it was really starting to to think about how do we how do we build a business model around this? Um, and and then, you know, I think also for us was was opening that door to see okay, this is not just juice. It's not just soy milk. This is happening in so many places in the food system. And the, the opportunities for um, upcycling byproducts are, are really quite massive. I mean, we're really just beginning to, to crack open that space. Um, and so that, that also made it exciting to think about um, all the different places that we could have uh, you know, an impact. Yeah. And it's interesting that Okara, you're lucky that you, you ended up you know, you met Min and, and you learned about okara because it is a proven ingredient. It isn't something that hasn't been used in food. In fact, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, I think Miyoko had a com- Miyoko Shina from Miyoko's had a company that did work she with did. okara a long time ago. She obviously. did. Yes. Yeah. That was um, that was a story that she shared the first time we met, which was really <laughs> really great. Um, yeah, she was selling pound cake in Tokyo right, that was made cake. with okara. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So she was very familiar with Okara. Um, yeah, but you're, you're right. I mean, it's, it's um, and, and part of, because it's known as a food, food product and a food ingredient, um, there's been peer-reviewed studies that are looking at the health benefits of it, which mm-hmm. is also great for us as we, as we seek to build a market for it here, here in North America is, you know, we can point to some of these studies that talk about how great Okara is for heart health or for kind of weight maintenance or muscle recovery. So all these, all these great things that have already been shown with, with Okara. Yeah. And so in other, outside of the U.S., and maybe, maybe you can also answer about what was happening here, is Okara like an ingredient that is um, produced at scale? Um, or is it this sort of niche thing that some people use to make food products with? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, um, so Part of the reason why it hasn't, it, why it's it's harder to use in some places in East Asia is because the production of tofu is more like what you would think of of as juice in the mm-hmm. U.S., where it's you know each town kind of has their tofu maker, and so you don't have the scale that you have in the West with food manufacturing with the tofu manufacturing, um, and so it it hasn't become as much of a product, although, you know, like I said, it was definitely used more from homemaking of soy milk. Um, it, it is more uh, present in the market there, mm-hmm. but not to uh, a huge extent because of some of these aggregation issues um, based on the, the kind of production landscape that you see in, in Asia. And I'm guessing out here, no one's done anything with it prior to you, at least not in a, in, that- in a level that you're doing it now. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. Wow. So that's definitely a, I can totally see you coming across that opportunity and, and being, wow, that's a white space. No one's tackled it. Uh, even from a nutritional standpoint, it, it, it really stacks up compared to white flour. There's no, comp, there's no competition, really. Okara is vastly superior. So 
um, I can totally see why that's that's the the way to go about it. But I would assume one of the challenges would be, and maybe there wasn't a challenge, is that what was Hodor doing with this uh, soy pulp before you came along? Was it being sold for animal yeah. feed? What and how were you able to come in then out price, or were they just throwing it away? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. So um, each kind of manufacturing facility has a different way of of handling it. So. Um, Hodo is close enough to some dairy operations that they're mm. able to have it um, be basically given for free to, to farmers who will take it as a kind of a filler feed. Um, it's not the most reliable method of disposal uh, just because it is, it, it's not considered like a preferred feed. So it, farmers' interest in it really fluctuates depending on the pricing of, of more valuable kind of feedstock for the, for the, for the animals. Um, but but there are facilities in the U.S. that also, you know, they might maybe spread it on land, kind of use it as like a fertilizer. Um, but then there are also operations that are having to haul it to landfill, which is obviously, if we think mm. about that hierarchy of use, that is absolutely the worst thing we want to be doing with it. Um, not only is it, you know, not being used, we've got those methane emissions coming from the decomposition in the in the landfill itself. So, um, so yeah, I think for, for us, um, you know, we both men and myself saw the potential for this to be um, eaten by humans, which is a, a big leap of that hierarchy of use and, and decided to kind of approach it from that point of view. Yeah. So they weren't really selling it. And so it's not like no. you had to go in there and compete with someone else who's bidding higher than you. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Okay. Not at all. It's very much, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that we've seen um, from working with uh, producers of byproducts is that the value to them of us coming in as an upcycling solution uh, is really around taking care, like eliminating a headache. So mm -hmm. these byproducts are just really, just really annoying to deal with, to mm -hmm. be totally honest. I mean, you're, a lot of places are producing them in pretty incredible volumes um, and it takes up a lot of space in the factory and it's space that could be used for, um, you know, actually generating revenue, you know, revenue generating activities. And instead it's basically like, um, you know, waste real estate until you can get rid of it. So, um, so I think having that kind of complete solution coming in to, to take care of this byproduct issue really is where the value lies. Um, we may see that change as markets are created for, for mm -hmm. these byproducts and they start to, you know, have value. Um, I think in some ways we see that as a very wonderful problem to be facing in the yeah. future because then we'll, we'll actually be seeing these um, with the kind of the true value that we think they should have. And it also depends on the product, right? So I, I guess you first you first getting the product for free, which is a great first step when you're trying yeah. to run a business. Yeah. Uh, so second step is um, so you're getting the raw ingredients for free. Uh, yeah. What kind of uh, technology or special process did you have to develop to then convert that into some of the products uh, that you've created since then? Yeah. So, um, so to, to produce the ingredient itself from the byproduct, it's a pretty straightforward dehydration and milling, um, process. So nothing, nothing too complex there. Um, we, we wanted to keep it as much of like, we wanted to, to process it, uh, keep it as minimally processed as we could, mm -hmm. um, keep, keep as much of that nutrition there, um, as possible. So, um, so our first, our first step was trying to find the most efficient way that we could dehydrate because that is the most intensive step of what we're doing and trying to 
uh, stay true to our ethos of being a sustainable company. Um, we wanted to make sure that that was as uh, as energy efficient as possible, which of course also lucky for us as a business also makes it as, you know, as cost, cost efficient as possible Mm -hmm. as well. Um, so we, we looked at a number of different drying technologies, um, working with the, the USDA, uh, located in the, in the Bay area in the Bay and, um, came up with, uh, f- found a solution that was very universally applicable to a lot of different byproducts, which was something that we wanted to kind of keep in mind as we thought about what's after Okara. Um, and then we made some modifications to it just to improve its efficiencies, uh, because it, it a lot of. A lot of food processing technology um, it, it hasn't changed very, mm-hmm. very often. Um, and so it, it's really incentivized to kind of stay, stay the same. So, um, so we, we took the opportunity to, to um, just improve that efficiency. And then we also, um, just kind of as a side note, we did some really fun experiments as well. This is more down the road for us, but we were able to do some experimentation with uh, solar thermal drying, which was very, very cool. <laughs> so we were able to basically use um, a solar array to generate the generate sufficient heat to actually dehydrate the the byproducts, which I think will be a really awesome additional piece to to what we're doing so that we can keep it like a totally sustainable process to create these sustainable foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the, that's interesting. So it wasn't like you had to you had to go and develop some proprietary technology. You were able to use things that existed and just sort of adapt them to meet your needs uh, and do it in a cost efficient manner and a sustainable manner. And exactly. I guess I have one more question on the the food waste issue with with production facilities. And you know, I know you focused on soy pulp, but I'm sure, it, as you said earlier, it happens across food manufacturing. Um, just a general sort of government policy question. Is that something, are there any incentives to uh, upcycle these products into something else? Does, has anyone having that conversation? I'm assuming there aren't, but. That is a great question. So no, um, generally what happens, I I would say in places where you've seen um, kind of some different treatment of the byproduct, it's become, it comes from like, a disincentive uh, around waste disposal. So um, generally with like environmental regulations. So um, it's actually kind of that was really the genesis of the whey protein um, Mm -hmm. category, which was that, you know, this whey byproduct from cheese making was being just dumped into, um, you know, dumped down drains, ended up in waterways. It was causing a whole bunch of like growth that they didn't want messing up all of those kind of... um, you know, water and riparian ecosystems. Um, and so they put regulations on like how you have to dispose of that way. And suddenly it was a lot more expensive than just sending it down the drain. And then the incentives were in place to figure out like, okay, we got to figure out how to get some money out of this <laughs> because yeah. it costs a lot to dispose of it. Um, and so there was, there was, you know, that, that really was the beginning of, of looking at whey protein. Um, so I think that's where we've seen some of the, um, you know, some of the growth in, in byproducts and, and treating byproducts differently is through, um, through those kind of regulations. But it, to my knowledge, I don't think at this point there's any kind of like um, uh, programs that are specifically kind of to, to benefit people that are looking at, looking at upcycling them. 
Wow. Well, definitely an area. There there should be. There should be, for sure. (laughs) And as most companies get into the space, I mean, I I think that's an area that, that needs focus. I mean, it... It, it goes without saying that we, we've we done things wrong for decades now uh, in the food yeah. industry. And, and I think now is the time where hopefully we're, we're making that turn to, to, to hope to something better. And it's it, the thing is, you can tell consumers to do everything possible as a, consum- as a conscious consumer can do. And companies mm-hmm. can do, try to do as best as possible to uh, develop um, sustainable convenient, affordable products that are high quality and nutritious. But eventually, you if you want to scale that up, you run into this bigger challenge that the system that currently exists is so, uh, it just makes it so hard for any new entrant to do anything because the existing system is built on subsidies and incentives that are not relevant anymore. And it should have been changed a long time ago. Um, But anyway, that's that's a problem to tackle another day. So let's just get to the next step of uh, what you did, which is so now you have, you know, you have an ingredient, you figured out how to to process it and turn it into something. Um, What why did you make the choices you did when it comes to um, the products you launched as well as so I guess my I guess let's back up a little bit. Yeah. What were you trying to be? Are you a ingredient company or are you a comp- are you a CPG brand <laughs> manufacturing food products or both? Yeah, so so we, <laughs> um, yes, in in practice both. Um, we are an ingredient company, so we um, we are aiming to be the go to ingredient supplier of upcycled ingredients to food companies who are looking to improve their own supply chains um, and looking to have better nutrition in their food uh, through, through, these, uh, through this whole class of upcycled ingredients. Um, in, in doing that, we saw the need to have um, you know, the rapid market entry of these novel and, and new, novel to this audience, um, to most of this audience, uh, ingredients through a CPG side of the business. Um, And part of that is also driven by the different sales timelines for both of those different types of of customers and different sides of the business. So um, ingredient formulation, reformulation, uh, for some of the bigger food companies, that's that's a pretty long process. Mm -hmm. That's years long, um, which doesn't uh, totally match up with kind of the the timelines that you think of for startups. (laughs) Um, And so we... We actually have this nice space where and, and time where, you know, as we're nurturing these ingredient uh, sales conversations, we're able to uh, supplement all of that work with our own branded products as well. Um, so they, you know, both of those sides were intentionally created to, to interplay with each other and, and one support the other. Yeah, because I think for you, if your long-term vision is to be an ingredient company, but you know that this just by announcing you're an ingredient company doesn't automatically mean that the whole <laughs> food, um, big food is going to come running to try to find, uh, yeah. find you. What do you do in the interim? How do you build, uh, how do you build the capacity? How do you build, re- how do you monetize? And so I can totally see the, the hybrid strategy being the only way forward because it's the way to showcase what can be done with the ingredients. Uh, totally. But it does come with its own challenges, right? Because then, you know, as an ingredient company, what you would be, you know, focused on is uh, figuring out how to scale, bringing down the cost, 
bringing about functionality for the products. But as a company that's manufacturing branded products, your focus is shifted on very, yeah, you still have to figure out how to scale your manufacturing. Mm -hmm. But now you have to think about uh, branding and marketing and all of that other stuff that comes (laughs) with trying to sell products to consumers. So uh, is that been, has that been a, challenge and as the, how have you managed to balance both sides of it you almost have to think in terms of a b2b company for, for some things and for as a b2c company for other things yeah yeah that's that's very true so we we generally take a lens of thinking you know we we look at opportunities through the lens of how does this ultimately support our ingredient sales goals? Um, and so we, we use that as a way to, to evaluate some of the, the opportunities that we're looking at on the B2C side of the business. Um, it, it definitely, you know, there are some things that can cross over. You're absolutely right. I mean, sales and marketing strategies are pr- pretty, pretty distinct with those two different, two different pieces of the business. Um, but we have found places where there's some nice, nice overlap. Um, so particularly with some of the marketing, uh, marketing materials that we have. So, you know, part of our value to uh, the food companies that we're working with to sell the ingredients to is that we, we share with them our story. So our story is their story to use. They can talk about, you know, what, what are the water savings from using this ingredient or the GHG emission mm-hmm. reductions from using the ingredient. Um, a con- consumers are also really drawn to that too. We're seeing more and more of those sorts of sustainability claims are driving purchasing decisions, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, so certainly some of that story, uh, translates between the, between the two different sides, which is, which is great. Um, and we've also found that, you know, having a brand on the, you know, a brand that's been created, uh, for the CPG side is, has been useful on the, on the ingredient sales side too. Um, so it's, it's been able to differentiate us, I think in, in some ways as well to have, to have some of the PR and to have, um, some of the, the kind of thought leadership that comes with having that consumer exposure on the CPG side. I think that is important for some of the, uh, for some of the customers that we're talking to on the B2B side. Yeah. And why did you choose, um, you know, just to make, just the last point in this question is that why not just be a CPG company and, you know, like, you know, the first when you were talking about whey protein is that why not launch a protein powder? I, I'm not suggesting you do that, but <laughs> I think that's what everyone seems to want to do these days. But, um, you know, why not take like the easy way out, find the most interesting category of products, introduce this whole new ingredient, the whole upcycling story pick a category that's that's growing really fast, launch a couple of different products, exit in five years, hopefully, <laughs> and, and that's the end of the story. Like this, what your your strategy is, I think the right one, but it's definitely a more, uh, it's for the long haul versus... It is, it is. And I think, I mean, part of that is because um, we're really driven by by our impact. I think that's what makes this, you know, that's what I'm really passionate about. And that's what really motivates me in this, in this job. And with, with the company is, is really taking a problem and being able to solve it in full. Um, And so we, you know, for us, a a KPI of like our own success of our mission of what we're trying to do is, is how much nutrition that was going to waste is now ending up on somebody's plate 
Um, and that, that really takes more of this ingredient approach um, of, uh, you know, because ultimately what you're talking about is wanting to uh, focus on volume and mm-hmm. focus on like the, the quantity that you can move as opposed to um, just, you know, having having success because of the story on it, like a CPG side of things. Um, I mean, that's, that's definitely great too. And to a certain mm-hmm. extent, that is what we're, you know, that is what we're doing yeah. with our branded product line. But, um, but ultimately we want that to be supporting these, a, a bigger movement within like the ingredient space so that we can actually have all of this product that was going to, to, to waste be, be used by, by people. For yeah. I like, I like, I like that answer in terms of like, just walk, thinking of the kind of impact you want to have and figuring out what is the best way to get there. Um, and what you are doing is, is doing both. You, you, you get the luxury of um, experimenting with your own products. Um, and, you know, if one of them takes off and becomes the next big thing in a specific category, then that's, that's only going to help you with your bigger plans, right? It's not going to hurt you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if we, you know, had that brilliant stroke of luck and suddenly this was like a runaway hit, it's not hard to think about, you know, how we can spin this out and, and take advantage of that. We, yeah. we'd be able to, we'd be able to say, yeah, you'd be able to solve that, that problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so for, for, for people listening, obviously, and who've, who've not, you know, heard of you before, have not tried some of your existing products that are on the market. I know you have some of your own branded products, but you also have products that are co-branded or in partnership with other companies. Give us a sense of like what's available out there. If someone is really interested to try what what you have to offer, where could you find it? What's what? What are your popular products? Sure, sure. Um, so we do sell just the pure Okara flower um, retail. So those are um, that is at Whole Foods in Northern California. So most of the Whole Foods there in that region. Um, you can also find that on Amazon and on our website. Um, we found that the it's a it's a popular um, it's a popular flower for people that are doing any sort of like keto baking because it's got very very low net carbs thanks to all that fiber. So it's a great great um, replacement or supplement to like a coconut flour if if that's um, kind of the the diet that you're following. Um, we also use the Okara flour in a one-to-one baking flour, gluten-free baking flour blend. So it's, it's a much, uh, you know, it's a very user-friendly way of, of eating the Okara flour. And what it brings to that gluten-free blend is a lot of nutrition. So a lot of, a lot of what's out there is, you know, functional and tastes, tastes fine. The Okara is able to create a better tasting blend that actually has all that protein and fiber that you would you know, you would have had from like a whole week. Um, and then we, uh, the product that we were uh, planning to launch at Expo West was our new upcycled brownie mix. So it's mm. plant-based, it's gluten-free, it's super easy. So it's just add oil and water and you get this delicious pan of dark chocolate, fudgy, gooey brownies. Um, we were very fortunate to have our, our product developer, Alice Medrich, who's just like an absolute master of all things chocolate and baking developed that, that recipe for us. So it's a, a really exciting new addition to the lineup. Um, we have two more, two more baking mixes uh, for cookies that'll be coming out this fall. Um, both of those also developed by Alice and also mm-hmm. uh, plant-based gluten-free, just add oil and water to them as, as well. Um, and then we have our, 
our uh, first product that we developed was our vegan chocolate chip cookie. Um, and that it's a, um, like a soft baked cookie. And that actually really was developed kind of organically from, um, you know, when we first started out and we were talking to people at events and trade shows about Okara, you can imagine the first question we got was like, well, what does it what taste it like? Taste like <laughs> can I try it? <laughs> like, obviously people, the people want to know what it tastes like. It's, it's, you know, you're at a food show. Um, so we ended up developing this recipe really, really with the intent to have a vehicle that was, um, very, uh, like a very friendly food that people are know and love a chocolate chip cookie, and then introducing this, um, ingredient that most people hadn't heard of through this vehicle. Um, so we, we came up with this recipe, we would use this at, at shows. And then the next question we started getting was like, Oh, and where, where do I buy this? <laughs> so we were like, Oh yeah, well that makes sense. Let's okay. go ahead and do that. So, um, so that, that is also one of our products as well. Yeah, I have tried the cookie, um, and uh, so that was it. Was actually at an event you were pitching at, and the cookies were being handed out, and I was like, "Why not?" And it tasted great. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I totally see why that organically developed. Um, what else can be done with this with this Okara ingredient besides baking and and cookies and yeah. all this good stuff? Yeah, many like so many things with it. Um, you know, one of the popular uses for it is actually to to use it similar to a powder, mm. <laughs> um, a nutritional powder, and mix it into like a breakfast smoothie. So that's one of the ways that we. Oh, seen so you it are working on a protein well. powder. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure I should mention that, um, but it it works. It works very well in that in that kind of role. Um, it can be used uh, in different like uh, plant-based meats as well. So we've oh, done really? some um, development work with a couple of companies looking at how it can be used um, to, to kind of fill out and add some texture to, to things like plant-based sausages and, and such. Um, so, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of different ways it can be used. Um, uh, you know, f- functionally, it, it, it can be added to the filling of like a ravioli. And because it, it has... Um, it, it's very thirsty. It binds water very well. I mean, because of that, because mm-hmm. of that fiber. And so it helps with like the functional, um, kind of that it, it retains water so that you don't get like leaky ravioli. Oh, so it so binds it, everything together yeah, in some ways. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so lots of, lots of really cool things that you can do with it. Yeah. And you know, let's talk, we, we started the conversation mentioning the pandemic and haven't brought it up since, but now I'm thinking, listening to your types of products that you offer, uh, I'm assuming when baking became suddenly what everyone wanted to do in the midst of lockdown, did you did, did your business just really um, see a significant spike in demand? We did. We did. Um, and we really, you know, for us, it was like a silver lining in that moment that we were able to provide a product that people were, were demanding people, you know, as you said, people were rediscovering this like love of, of baking and being in the kitchen when they're at home. Um, but able to more widely and kind of in a more an accelerated way, spread the, the upcycled story of what we were doing, um, while meeting this need that people had to be, to be baking and, and in the kitchen. So, um, for us, it was, it was a nice opportunity. I think, one of the one of the um, challenges for us was that we, uh, and I, this may be a question that's coming up <laughs> later, but um, one of the challenges for us was that 
we actually hadn't, we didn't have a lot of those sales channels already set up before COVID hit. So um, our primary, our primary um, sales were of the cookies into office snacking programs. Mm -hmm. So um, you can imagine what happened to us in March when all the offices shut down. Um, we, we tried to do a little bit of um, a, a little bit of a pivot into kind of home delivery of snacks, but I think, uh, you know, it turns out that when um, people have to pay for what were free snacks and they're working one room away from their kitchen, um, it's, it's not, <laughs> not a particularly uh, appealing option for them. So, um, so it was a bit of a, a very quick move that we had to make to try to, try to get e-commerce up and running, find opportunities where we could be in brick and mortar retail. Um, I think... We were fortunate to have, uh, we, we had very few kind of production interruptions for us. And so we were able to, you know, go to a lot of, approach a lot of stores and say, hey, your baking aisle is like pretty empty. We have products like mm -hmm. we, you know, we're not yet set up as a vendor, but like we can help you restock that, that baking aisle um, for people. And so that, that was part of the way we were able to, to kind of get our foot in the door through some of those retail channels. Yeah, I mean, those few months, you had to move quickly to, to find, you know, because there was demand. It was a question that demand's not good enough if you have no way to get the product to people who want it, right? Right, right, so exactly. So it's nothing more frustrating than you you have the product, you, you want to connect with those consumers, but you just are not selling through those channels that, that they would go to. So I can imagine those were a few tense but interesting months at the same time. Um Besides the soy bean pulp, the Okara, I know you're exploring other um, ingredient options that, that uh, are not soy-based. Uh, can you tell us a little bit That's more right. about what your plans are there and what we can expect in the coming months? Yeah, yeah. So we are, um, we're looking, you know, the kind of the broad area that we're looking at is, is these fibrous byproducts. And then within that category, looking specifically first at the byproducts coming out of plant-based milk production. So um, uh, the next ingredient that we'll be bringing to market commercially is, um, is the upcycled oat flour that's made from that oat pulp that's left behind during oat milk production. So very analogous to mm -hmm. the Okara and the soy milk. Um, it's also a very... Um, a very exciting byproduct because it has like a great nutritional profile. It's got a lot of protein. It's not the complete protein that the soy okara has, but, um, but it's quite a bit of protein as well as a lot of that fiber, um, a little bit more fat than the, than the soybean okara has, which, which can be helpful in mm -hmm. baking applications. Um, so we're very excited about it. It, uh, you know, part of what makes the Okara so versatile is that it's very light in color and extremely neutral in flavor. So the oat Okara has a little bit more color to it. Um, it's a, like a little bit more of a pale brown, and it does have some flavor notes, but they are oat flavors, and um, most most people enjoy the flavor of oat, and uh, oat, oat is pretty hot right now. So mm -hmm. um, so we think there's a, a pretty big opportunity. Um, for for that product as well, and you're you partnering with multiple multiple companies to do this, or because I can we totally are. see yep. the oat milk market is. I mean, I don't Exploded. know the exact numbers, but yeah, <laughs> it's everywhere, right? So it I'm is. guessing there's no shortage of uh, of places for you to source these these uh, the, byproducts from. 
That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And, and actually because it's exploding right now, it's a great time to be talking to, to producers because um, most, most of the big companies are in the process of building new production lines or, mm-hmm. or even entirely, you know, new facilities to, to keep up with the demand for oat milk. So it's a great moment to kind of get into those conversations and, or enter into those conversations and be like, you know, have you thought about the byproduct? Um, let's, <laughs> let's like, think about that as we're building this, you know, as you're building this whole system, like let's, let's think about it holistically. And, you know, we, we, we are happy to help you do that. Yeah. And I should have clarified this earlier when you use the term Okara in the context of the soybean pulp converted into your flour. What does Okara mean? And can, is the oat product also Okara? Or I thought that just applied to the soy product. Yeah, yeah. So okara is a is a Japanese word. Um, the etymology is actually really cool. Um, the the kara refers to the husk, and the o is is kind of an honorific. So the word okara itself means like honoring the bean or like honoring the the kind of the whole part of the of the product, which is exactly the the <laughs> ethos of our whole company. So I think that that's kind of a beautiful part of the story. We actually thought at the very beginning, you know, do we want to come up with a different name for this? Do we want to have some sort of trademark name around it? But we actually just really fell in love with the the actual name for this, you know, for this ingredient. Um, so, so yes, so Okara as an identifier, like um, as an ingredient identifier is for the soybean pulp. Um, we casually apply it to these other pulps, mm-hmm. um, but, but it is, it, officially is tied to to the soybean okay that makes a lot more sense i'm glad i asked that question because i was thinking about it earlier but now that we talked about oats it it definitely came back um what has this journey been like for you i know how many years is the old is the company so far uh we're going on four and a half years okay and so it's so you've been at this now for for a few years um Mm -hmm. but still in terms of the long um sort of the longer vision impact you want to have you're you're in your very early early stages so you know what how are you working to kind of address some of those bigger challenges uh with trying to become an ingredient company because i I think i mentioned this earlier you have to scale you have to bring down the cost of your products you have to Mm -hmm. increase the functionality i mean the ingredient world is is big and competitive right you have likes of cargill dupont ingredient others who are kind of like the just basically control the market right now how what is your sort of you know firstly what the what has the journey been like so far to get to this point and and kind of where do you see the next three or four years um how different do you think the company will be say if you were to talk four years hence compared to where it is now yeah great great question um yeah, so you know, so the beginning, the the focus on it was really for us to understand, um, really understand our product just totally inside and out, because um, I think that is where a lot of the value can can come from as an ingredient company. Um, we're seeing more and more food companies are pushing that innovation onto their suppliers, and it's becoming more and more important for for suppliers and ingredient companies to bring that innovation and bring that um, kind of new new ideas to the table with with the ingredients. And we found that to be the case with our conversations with food companies. So that was something we we 
took care to make sure that we were building into to what we were doing is that we, we really understood this uh, ingredient and, and also that we understood the way that the market was going and where consumer trends are, because that's, that's the other piece of it is, is knowing how we can use this ingredient to best meet the consumer demands. Mm-hmm. And those are the answers that food companies are looking for. Um, and that's what we hope sets us apart when we when we are um, you know selling these ingredients to food companies. Um, you know, in the future, we would love to have uh, you know a wider portfolio of ingredients: the soybean, the oat, moving into other other byproduct streams that can offer a range of different functional and nutritional benefits, so that we can really meet all the different needs of the consumers and the customers that we're, that we're talking to and that we're working with. Yeah. And in terms of making, accelerating your progress or making your vision or your strategy a reality, what, what I mean, a number, number of things have to happen, but what do you think um, are some of the more key things? Is it building consumer awareness around upcycled food? Is it more of these, like the policy challenges that we talked about earlier? Is it just getting, uh, the technology right to make sure that you're able to at scale source these byproducts from multiple companies and figure out a way to 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 then turn that around into your Okara product that you can sell to other companies. Like what will change the needle for you and kind of speed up something uh, in the next uh, in the coming years? That's that's a or great all question. of the above. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yes, exactly. D all of the above. Um, but. You know, ultimately, I think a, a huge driver is going to be consumer demand, mm. um, as as it is a big driver for for so much that happens. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and we're starting to see that. I think um, you know we're we're beginning to see a lot more awareness around the concept of upcycling. Um, you know, at the beginning, four and a half years ago, I was still you know, most of my conversations with folks, even folks like in the food space involved having to kind of educate on some of the basics around food waste and what upcycling is. We don't, you know, we don't have to do that anymore, even at like consumer facing um, events, because so many people are aware of the problem. And I think it's, it's beginning to shift from, um, as you alluded to earlier, it's really beginning to shift from this awareness that, uh, addressing food waste is the number one solution to climate change right now to, okay, I, I know that now, how do I, how, how can I, what can I do to, to be part of that solution? And so linking that with, um, you know, purchasing upcycled food or purchasing food made with upcycled ingredients, I think is kind of that next phase that we're in now. Um, Renewal Mill was part of uh, the founding members of the new trade organization that's built to uplift the upcycled food industry, the, the Upcycled Food Association. Um, and, and I think through that, we're seeing kind of that, that growth as well in awareness. So the, the membership there has grown from, I think, started with something like eight or nine of us and, and is now, um, over a hundred members strong in, in the first like eight or nine months of the existence of the group. So, um, so we see it starting and I think it's exciting, but I do think that as that trend begins to, to, to really, take form in earnest is where we're going to see some major, major 
shifts um, in in the in the industry. Yeah, and I think that was definitely a, a smart step. You know, I mean, I heard about it. It felt like, wow, this is already becoming a thing that they have a trade association. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you have to organize and you have to work together to to get it for. I mean, the, if you look at the growth in the plant based category overall, one of the benefits they've you know that industry or that sub subcategory of the natural food industry was they organized pretty early and they and and they have a obviously they have a trade association that's been around for a while now um and especially if you want to be able to move the needle on things like policy if you want to want to build um more consumer consumer awareness in a in a kind of a cohesive manner i think you need that you need to work together um Totally. And totally. so I think that's I, definitely the first step in making it happen. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think also, you know, from the beginning, kind of figuring out ways that we can um, capture consumer trust in what this concept of upcycling is and and having some sort of quantifiable meaning behind it was also very important. And so, you know, the first thing that, that the group is doing, um, well, the first thing that they did was come up with a formal definition of what, what upcycled means. Second step is certification processes for, for food items and making that certification something that consumers can can trust is is going to be really helpful as the as this trend and as this category begins to grow and ultimately with the goal of you know upcycled becoming the new organic <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and you know also creating an incentive for the big food companies to to want to yes. be a part of it right because exactly. they they all are making sustainability commitments they're all trying to figure out how to minimize waste reduce emissions uh, minimize their impact or reduce it in some way along the supply chain. And it should be, you know, the new norm should be how the question every food company should be asked is what are you doing with your byproducts? You know, are you putting it back exactly. into the, uh, into the supply chain? Are you just throwing it to waste, right? Is it going to a exactly. landfill? And, and that, you know, I could easily see this getting to a point where that's just unacceptable and they're hopefully the right yeah. incentives to, uh, all penalties if you are throwing away those products when they could easily be reused uh, totally. in most cases. So I guess it's it's interesting how this, you know, your story and the work that you've done uh, may have seemed tied to this one ingredient uh, and this one company, but is now part of a, of a bigger movement that is kind of you know, hopefully you all will lift each other up as you go forward. That's what's happened in the plant-based food industry overall. And I, I, I definitely see that as a possibility here as well. Same. That's definitely our, our philosophy is definitely rising, rising tide lifts all boats. So um, yeah, and it's, it's an exciting time to be, to be in this space. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to close out with my, my last question that I always okay. ask anyone who comes on my <laughs> podcast because oh dear. Um, I, I think it, it, the, the timing is perfect given the kind of discussion we're having right now. It's really it's based on this idea that um, you know, I, I look ahead about 30 years to the year 2050 and I, and I give that year because we're what, 7.5 or 6 billion people on the planet today. We're going to be by most estimates, nearly 10 billion by 2050. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right in the beginning, you were talking about this whole, we were talking about food waste and how uh, with a shift 
to more sustainable plant forward diets. You also need to tackle the food waste problem. And mm -hmm. you can't have people choosing plant based foods, but now creating a bigger food waste problem because now everyone's right. making oat milk and uh, <laughs> all that waste is just being thrown to landfills. So right. we need to tackle both these problems. And that's just one amongst many problems we need to tackle to ensure that we correct the mistakes of the past uh, that have gotten our food system to the point where it is today, where, you know, COVID, let's bring it back to the pandemic, has made it clear that it's shown all the weaknesses in, in the vulnerabilities right. in our food system. It's, right. it's kind of made us, even if you don't think about sustainability for whatever reason, if you're the kind who doesn't think that's something that concerns you or impacts you or your family in any way, um, it's made it clear that if you need a food system that's going to be resilient, and that's just another way of saying sustainability, but it is, you need something that's going to, you know, when you have disasters, when you have pandemics, when you have, are we able to make sure that the food gets to shelves? Is, are, you, are we able to make sure that the food can get delivered to your homes? Um, so it's become an issue that people are thinking about more. So my point being, We've ended up with the food system here because we've made mistakes in the past. I think we've realized it's time to change, and there's a lot of people you included working on um, being a part of that change. Uh, so I guess this question is really a forward-looking one. Like, okay. what is your vision for the food system in 2050 if we get it right, if you succeed, if Renewal Mill is able to achieve all the things you wanted to achieve, if upcycled food becomes this new mm -hmm. norm, mm -hmm. and you know, we hopefully fix all the other problems with our food system yeah. too. <laughs> But from your lens, what what is your vision for a food system in in the year twenty fifty? Um, yeah, I know you have a young child. I do. Yeah, so so <laughs> that's it's even more relevant for you. What right. kind of world do you ex do you want yeah. to see in thirty years if you succeed, and rather when you succeed, and when these companies and our food system has changed? Yeah, um, that's that's a great question. I think um, it, it has become much much. Uh, uh, it, it's definitely something that I think a lot more about now that I have, now that I have a little one at home and I'm actually thinking it, thinking about it through the lens of his future. And, you know, I was just calculating quickly, like, okay, he'll be 31 in 2050. <laughs> so like, what, what is, what, you know, what will his sort of young adult life look like? Um, you know, from the lens of, of where, where we're coming from and what our kind of passion is um, at Renewal Mill, I think a big component that I would like to see in that year is that we're living in like a zero waste world. Um, and so we're able to put whatever incentives need to be in place so that we are fully efficient with the resources that we use. Um, and that is a broad statement and can apply to a lot of different areas, but particularly if you think about food, and you think about some of these statistics that float around that I think a lot of people and a lot of the, the listeners are probably familiar with that, you know, we, we waste 30% of the food that we produce. That's an extremely huge amount of land that is being, I, I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's more than the area of China is land that is being farmed to produce food that never gets eaten, <laughs> which is remarkable, right? So you can imagine in 2050, um, you know, what I'd like to imagine is a world where all of these resources matter because we're utilizing what we what we make with them. Um, and and we you know, we're not wasting pieces of it. So I think I think that idea of reaching 
um, that full efficiency, being efficient and not having, you know, ha having a zero waste uh, world is, is what I see as a, a you know, a, a beautiful, a beautiful option for 2050. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, if your son's going to be 31 around that age, but, uh, then you want him to be in a world where that's, that's the reality. And, 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 yeah. in, and in a way, if you don't do it, I don't want to imagine what that world's going to look like. Right. So I, know. I think I know. I, we kind of don't have a choice, so we better get working right. at it. And so, totally. um, I really, really uh, appreciate the work you're doing. I think it's important and I, and I can't wait to see, how upcycle food continues to grow as a as a term as a as a trend in the food industry really enjoyed chatting with you thank you so much for being on the podcast well thank you so much this was an absolute pleasure it was so wonderful to to have this conversation and and spend this time with you really appreciate it thank you You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.